don't think I've ever carried quite so much to the platform before. I felt compelled to uh, sort of carry on in the same vein as our brother was sharing. We were just singing, he'll come and tarry not. What a glorious thing. Many of uh, what we sang in worship this morning and in the opening of this service speaks to uh, the message of this morning, the eternal state of man. We sang uh, in the worship service, And when the bright morn of thy glory shall come, and children ascend to the Father's glad home, I'll shout with thy likeness impressed on my brow, Tis thou who art worthy, Lord Jesus, tis thou. How will we sing and how do we sing now? Um, John Newton wrote some uh, very piercing words and very true and, and, and very hopeful. We sang it uh, just a, a few minutes ago. Weak is the effort of our heart and cold our warmest thought, but when we see thee as thou art, we'll praise thee as we ought. There were men who often went to the Word and considered what God said and their hearts were in a place where look forward to that blessed appearing of our Lord and what's going to be afforded to us as we move from this fallen world into the perfect state. Father, we, we thank you for that, that blessed hope and this promise, the surety of our eternal presence in your glory, all this by what your Son has done. We pray that your words will resonate this morning, that nothing will be said, but that is guided and directed by you. Again, we commit this morning to you and give thanks in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I know many of you think I'm crazy, and, and I certainly am, I suppose. Um, my next statement may come as no surprise, uh, given some of the extreme sports I've taken pleasure in. I have often thought what a glorious thing it would be to die. I, I know that's almost a perverse thought. Like I, our, our brother, I, I, I've often thought, oh, I, I hope I'm still alive when the rapture comes. But then there's moments when I think, well, if I pass through the curtain through that veil we sang about, and into the presence of God. I'll walk with him in the veil, and then I'll be resurrected and enjoy the rapture anyways. I get to experience them both. And no, I, I don't really have a death wish. God's given us this desire to survive. This morning we're going to talk about the eternal state. You know, the church is accused of not preaching about hell. Well, I'm, as I'm going to speak this this morning and Lord willing tonight. Maybe the Lord will come before I finish and we'll just go right from talking about it to experiencing it. Church doesn't preach much about sin and judgment and hell. That accusation's been truthfully portrayed for years, but the church doesn't speak much about heaven either, particularly in a manner uh, that gives us that, that passion, that desire to be in the presence of God. So man's final destination, what is it, where is it, and uh, what are the choices? <laughs> Why should we investigate uh, eternity? Well, 
because it, be, it, it begins, the eternal state begins the moment we leave this life. When are you leaving? Most of us don't have a clue. We don't know. Well, we ought to choose a path, but we should be careful. You know, Proverbs, uh, twice we're told, there's this the same verse in the 14th and 16th chapters. There is a path, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but in the end it, it leads to death. Oh, if we're going to take a trip, we want to make sure that we're planning appropriately. We know where we're going. You know, Yogi Berra once famously said, you've got to be very careful if you don't know where you're going because you might not get there. He also said it another way. He said, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up someplace else. You know, there's a whole list of yogi bearism. I didn't say yogi bear. I said yogi bearer. Um, there are some who think the bear was smarter than yogi bearer. This man put a lot of thought into things he was saying, though. Really, he had, I don't know if he's a believer or not. I certainly hope to see him there. I don't know much about sports. I don't watch sports, but... There's some wisdom there. If we're going someplace, we, we, we consult a map. Nowadays, of course, GPS or uh, travel aids, but we ought to know where we're going. Someone's seeking a job. They, they, we think it prudent for them to ask questions like, where am I going to work? What are my hours? What do I have to do? How safe is the job? What's this job security? How about a retirement plan? And, oh, yeah, what will I be paid? We think someone a fool if they don't ask those questions. There are others who say that every time the recruiter is successful at signing up a new slave, I mean a new recruit for the armed forces, that's what, what happens. That's not true, but there's an old slang phrase that is very true. That's why most sayings come into being. There's at least some truth in them. It says, a whole lot of people talking about heaven who ain't going there because they have a mistaken view of, of what it is, how to get there, what it takes. Curiosity is a good thing if you have it aimed in the right direction. You seek out what it is that uh, can benefit you. If you're going to invest in that, you want to know whether it's money or time, your life, you want to invest it wisely. Some people say, well, I don't think we can know about heaven. It's, it's, it's a secret thing or it's hidden from us. You know, in Scripture, there is a difference between hidden things and secret things. If somebody says they know what the Seven thunders in Revelation 10, all right, I know that either they're lying or they're deceived. We can't know that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. But just because they're revealed doesn't mean that they're easy to find. We're also told in Proverbs 25 that, you know, it's the, the glory of the Lord to to hide a thing, but it is the honor of kings to seek it out. And near as I can tell from Scripture, in Revelation we're told we've been made kings and priests unto God. We ought to seek these things out. Again, that's just a sign of wisdom. I mean, there's some, I suppose, who might investigate heaven and decide they don't want to go there. But what a tragedy to never even investigate it and then end up someplace else. Now, there are a lot of people that are interested in the afterlife. And bookstores, or at least what's left of them, and the other media outlets are, are full of offerings on heaven, hell, and every perceived dimension uh, in between. Movies, songs, plays, art, 
and they're all competing for an eager audience, and it seems that the, the topic of the moment is near-death experiences. You know, even the scientific community, you know, if a decade ago, if, if, if a scientist was talking about near-death experience and life after death, their credentials would be ruined. Now it's become mainstream. Problem is, near-death experiences don't offer proof of anything. We see that many of them uh, are in direct opposition to what Scripture tells us. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're not given glimpses at times into eternity. We, we have it in Scripture. But what's going to be the arbiter of truth? It's, it's, it's going to be the Bible. We want to trust in science. What's the shelf life of a science book? Most of them, at least a portion of them are obsolete by the time they get to the press. The truth in the book of truth of that science book has been displaced by the new truth in the new book of truth that dispels the old truths, in which itself is, you know, we keep learning new things. I'm not knocking science. It's a wonderful, glorious thing. God has given us this curiosity, this ability to gather knowledge. But what knowledge doesn't change? It's what the Bible says. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the options, and we're going to talk about the eternal state. We're going to focus primarily on heaven. And before we go through some of the attributes in, a, in an orderly fashion, I'll just make a couple of broad, overriding statements that we ought to have fixed in our mind about heaven. I often tell people, my short description of heaven is this. It's, it's wherever God is. He's the one full of truth, beauty, perfection, and glorious light. Hell, on the other hand, is just the opposite. This, this absence, this separation of, of those who were in hell from the God of light, pureness, beauty, and truth. The nature of heaven is that it's, it's completely perfect. You know, Habakkuk says, he, he, he's complaining to God about what God's plans are. He says, well, how can you do this? He says, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. It, he's correct in that assertion. Now, God does see our evil here. In his forbearance, he's passing over the sins of man for a while, but there is a judgment coming. Briefly talk about our bodies. Brother talked about not wanting to experience death. Woody Allen once famously said, I, it's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Our bodies, they're not our life. We have this sort of upside down mixed up. Our bodies are not our life. They, they house our life contains our soul and our spirit, the things which last forever. Our body is not our life. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 5. It's like, it's like a tent. It's just a temporary abode. You know, like many of you, you're recently camping in Yosemite for a week. I lived in a tent. The analogy is not perfect. I was in and out of the tent a lot, but that tent's been rolled up and put away. It's buried in my garage. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to talk about some of the options. While you're doing that, I'm going to tell a short story, and it's not just to inject humor. Um, it, again, has to do with the body. And there is order to God's realm. God's realm encompasses everything, including this creation. And we can't violate God's order. Well, while we're talking about order, there is a book called Disorder in the American Courts. And it's purported that every word in there is, was said inside a courtroom. It's been recorded by the court recorders. And I, I'm going from memory, so I, I won't get it exact, but the thoughts are exactly what was uh, transcribed by the reporter. 
It's a murder trial, and what I take to be the defense attorney for the convicted or for the accused is cross-examining the coroner, and he asks some pointed questions. He, he says to the coroner, Doctor, exactly what time did you start the autopsy Wednesday night? 8.30 p.m. And was the victim, Mr. Erickson, was, was he dead at the time you started the, the, the autopsy? No, he was sitting on the edge of my table asking why I was cutting him up. Well, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for respiration? No. Well, then how can you be sure he was dead? His brain was sitting in a jar on my desk. <laughs> well, nevertheless, isn't it possible that Mr. Erickson was actually alive when you started the autopsy? I suppose it's possible he's alive somewhere in practicing law. <laughs> that is, I mean, what foolish, we laugh, and it is funny, in a sad way. I don't, I don't suggest that the lawyer believed what he was saying, he was fighting for his client, but that lawyer ultimately thought that life was possible in violation of God's order here on earth. And whether we violate the order here on earth or in eternity, the consequences are tragic. All right, um, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read about two destinations. When you're, when you're planning a trip, a vacation, um, you might have the choice of going to the lake or going to the city. And for most of us, the lake sounds a little more pleasant. You know, that's what people often say about hell. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and dead, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Pretty descriptive. People say, well, that's just symbolic. Well, you know, a symbol is never as great as the thing for which it stands as a symbol. If it's worse than this, how bad can it possibly be? Well, let's continue reading. Revelation chapter 21, read about the city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. There's a picture of anticipation. And I... And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things are passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, 
for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Well, there we have the, the two options, the lake or the city. There are only two. There are some who think there's other options. That's not what Scripture teaches. And it's fair for us to say that this question of eternity is the most uh, important question we'll ever ask. The two places, good and bad, and those are very weak words, but the truth is there's no word sufficiently extreme in either direction to adequately describe heaven or hell. The words we just read in the book of the Revelation are probably the, the best picture we'll ever get of it. I want to read a quote from Erwin um, Lutzer who takes us now and helps us to personalize that thought. In the introduction to that little book, I, I often give away one minute after you die. He says this, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you have never known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable irrevocably fixed, eternally unchangeable. That's in accord with Scripture, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. Got to get it right. I mean, this, again, life is not a video game. There's no reset button. Lutzer went on to say, those who find themselves in heaven will be surrounded with friends whom they have known on earth. Friendships once rudely interrupted by death will continue where they left off. Every description of heaven they have ever heard will pale in the light of reality. All this, forever. Others, indeed many others, will be shrouded in darkness, a region of deprivation and unending regret. There, with their feelings and memories fully intact, images of their life on earth will return to haunt them. They will think back to their friends, family, and relatives. They will brood over opportunities they squandered and intuitively know that their future is both hopeless and unending. For them, death will be far worse than they imagined. Lucha goes on to remind us that when our families are planning our funerals, we're already in the eternal state um, experiencing the consequences of the choices we make. He finishes with, you will either see God on his throne surrounded by angels and redeemed humanity, or you will feel an indescribable weight of guilt and abandonment. There is no destination midway between these two extremes just gladness or gloom? You know, the question for hearers of this message is, is this true? He said, what Lutzer says personalizes it. We ought to stick ourselves in there. Where am I going to be? As I often say, don't trust me. I'm just some kook willing to share what God says. That's what you ought to trust. You know, this is in Claremont Bible Chapel. We venerate and take the Bible as our foundation. I know it's near and dear to the hearts of the elders and the saints here that I've met. That's where we get our truth. What does it say? Some people try to use the Bible even to say we shouldn't investigate heaven. They'll, they'll quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 saying, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. See, see we can't know. 
course, they're stopping mid-sentence if they just continue reading. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. We're supposed to know these things. Well, a brief overview of the attributes of, of heaven. To anybody who reads the Bible, most of these will, will be intuitive. First, heaven is God's dwelling place. Now, as I said, my short definition is heaven's wherever God is. There's over 70 verses in the Bible that specifically directly say that God is dwelling currently in heaven. From Job to Deuteronomy, Psalm, all the way through and into Revelation. Matthew, in, in, um, Jesus tells us in the fifth chapter, he's telling us that heaven is God's throne. And in verse 45, he goes on to say that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. The great promise. Now, heaven is God's dwelling place, so it stands to reason that the, the next attribute is only the righteous will be in heaven. Wicked will not be allowed to enter. And how do you define who's righteous and who's unrighteous? Well, I can make it easy for you. If you're a human being and you're alive and breathing, you're unrighteous. Unless you've been washed in the blood of Christ. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? As the hymn writer says. If not, you're unrighteous. And we can argue about it, but the good news is this. You know, the, you read in Revelation, people think they have some wiggle room, but he tells us, liars, I have their place in the lake of fire. There's a whole list of really wicked people. And at the beginning of that passage, in the, the 21st chapter, verse 80 says, even the fearful and unbelieving have their place in the lake of fire. Seems like bad news, but the good news is even the vilest murderer when he's in Christ is no longer a murderer. A title no longer applies. I mean, it does here, but in the eyes of God, it no longer applies. What will heaven be like? This is one that bothers people. I'm going to speak more at length about this tonight because there is a very, it's wicked, really, and it, it robs people of the joy that we should possess. And it also robs us of the motivation to share with others. The common view is that it's just going to be an, an unending church service. You know, continual praise and worship. Well, that's the truth of Scripture. Again, throughout the Bible. And for most people, they don't enjoy worship. I mean, I, I count it a privilege. For me, I get to participate to sing along with you, me who has such a, I can follow. If our brother leads, I can follow. I can, I can sing, by and large, melody poorly. One day I'm going to have a beautiful voice and the ability. But I count it a privilege for me. I so enjoy it. Now, when I visit other churches, they'll have some very talented musicians. The people in the congregation seldom are really joining in. It's like they're listening to a concert. I don't want, this isn't an issue of pride. I'm saying, what can we enjoy? The worship in heaven is not going to be a forced, tiresome exercise of boredom. You know, people here, they're thrilled to go to a, a concert and, and witness their, their earthly music hero. 
And, and they, they count it a great thing that they're able to be in their presence. Let's use our God-given imagination a little bit. Imagine for a moment you have the privilege of saving the life of your earthly mu musical hero. In, uh, in gratitude, they hold a concert just for you. You're the center, the only recipient of their heartfelt performance. One of immeasurable thankfulness because you've saved their life. Now they have a love for you. Let's turn to the tables. Now imagine an event where you're there as the performer offering praise to someone who has saved your life. That's what it's going to be like in heaven. It's not a perfect analogy. <laughs> you won't be the only performer there. You'll be a, a beautiful, wonderful, much-loved, tiny little star singing with billions of other stars but worshiping the one who, who loved you, who is the definition of love, by whose love we have the right and the opportunity to be there. There's going to be outpouring of worship that just makes the best of worship down here forgettable. Heaven is a place of magnificence and great beauty. Um, you know, we could think back to the, the Garden of Eden, the unspoiled beauty. Again, my, my short definition of heaven, wherever God is, Eden was heaven on earth. God walked in the garden. You know, as Milton wrote, Paradise Lost, this 12-volume, thousands of pages of poem uh, about this subject. Well, paradise lost is going to be paradise reclaimed, redeemed, restored, and protected forever. Heaven will be a place of great joy and satisfaction in His presence. If you think of one verse to anchor your heart and your mind, your thoughts in heaven, I have a hard time finding one better than Psalm 1611. Oh, show me the path of life. What's the result? In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the next psalm, the psalmist cries out, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Heaven's going to be eternal. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read about the rapture. It tells us, then, then shall we ever be with the Lord. Psalm 23, I mean, it closes with, I'll dwell forever in the house of the Lord. Inherently, we know these things, but how glorious is it? Peter tells us that it, this inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and doesn't fade away. Reserved for us in the heavens. We're also told that heaven is going to be peopled by uh, people of all races and tongues and tribes, every nation. We read in Revelation 5 and 7. Well, this one's, we'll say, well, that's a no-brainer. Angels will be there. You know, we're told that even right now when a lost soul comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there's, there's worship in the presence of a multitude of angels. Well, in describing heaven, the Bible tells us these things about heaven. It also tells us uh, what will not be there. We talked a little bit about who won't be there. How about what won't be there? We read it in Revelation 21, verse 4. Again, a glorious verse. I read from the NASB earlier here. Uh, the King James, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. There's no physical pain. We don't have to go in like our, our brothers did this week for surgery. We don't have to suffer as our sister does. Years of continual pain. That verse also tells us there'll be no more emotional suffering, no sorrow or crying, 
No mourning. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And we're told it again in Revelation 7. We're also told there's no violence or wars. You know, Job prophesying in the future says, those who are troublesome will cease. And those who are weary will have rest. Paul writing to the Thessalonians again in 2 Thessalonians 1 says, you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Revelation 21.4, reinforce that. There's no death. We're told in Revelation 7, verses 16 and 17, there's no more hunger or thirst, neither will we feel oppressive heat or discomfort. And it's not just that we won't need to eat. We're actually told in verse 17 of Revelation 7, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall lead them unto living waters. This one troubles a lot of people. We're told that there's no marriage between humans in heaven. There is going to be a wedding. Some of us have a little trouble wrapping our mind around that, but there's no, no more marriage between uh, men and women. Marriage is a wonderful gift. I don't understand what it's going to be replaced with fully, but God doesn't take something away and replace it with something that's less glorious. We're told there's no, no night, no darkness, no need for it. It not say there won't be light. It said there's no need for them. For God, the Lamb will be our light. We're told there's no old heaven, there's no old earth, there's no sea. There's going to be bodies of water someplace, I believe, for the creatures that he had created to dwell in them to exist. I don't know what this means. It might mean there's no division among the people. It might be nations, but the people are all united. We're told there's no temple. Um, you know, Paul, right into Timothy, says there's therefore no mediator between man and God. Well, John tells us in Revelation 21, there's, there's no building either. Heaven is the building, and heaven is the expanse of all that God entails. There's numerous metaphors in the, uh, in the Bible for, for heaven, uh, the Father's house. Again, we mentioned it, Psalm 26, I'll dwell forever in the house of the Lord. What a glorious thought that is. Jesus in John 14 says, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. you know, there's the carpenter's son, the son of God, putting up walls for a place for me to dwell. In the Father's house. It's called a heavenly country or city. Hebrews 11, 12, 13. You know, we're told Abraham, he wasn't interested in cities here on earth. No, he was looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. We're told it's a rest. We, we spoke of it already in 2 Thessalonians 1. I heard David Hawking mention this once in it resonated for my sick mind perhaps revelation 14 13 and i heard a voice from heaven saying unto me write blessed are the dead which die in the lord from henceforth yea saith the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them blessed are the dead he said you know are you weary or wore out are you overworked he says drop dead you'll have rest that's only a Applicable if you're in, in the Lord. Otherwise, it's not safe to die. It's called a granary. That's a place you put something that you value and protect. And Jesus spoke of it in his parables. Uh, it's a kingdom. And that's not a metaphor. I think this is the kingdom. And everything on earth is just a, a really weak, distant shadow of it. But what do we know about kingdoms? It's a place 
of privilege. The king reigns and those who serve him in the kingdom, they're privileged to be there. That's our eternal home. Paradise, we know Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus writing in, uh, to the churches says in Revelation 2.7, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Heaven is a paradise. Paul talked about being caught up to it in 2 Corinthians 12. It's referred to as the mountain of the Lord, um, a symbol of power, a great feast. Um, I don't, it's not just symbolic. I think there is going to be feasting in heaven. Again, we're going to talk about what some might consider frivolous activities in heaven tonight. Not just an advertisement to draw you out, but I'm going to talk about a lot of the misconceptions and why the human being who is in Christ is really not living with heaven in mind. There's that accusation, all those people are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly use. First off, that's a, just a plain stupid statement. The other thing is, it's not true. There aren't very many Christians today who are heavenly minded, at least not with the right thoughts and attitudes. Heaven's referred to as being up. You know, it's it figured, William McDonald pointed out, if I'm in America and I'm looking at heaven as a believer, and down in Australia there's a believer looking at heaven, we're, we're looking in physically different directions, but we're looking up. Here's one of the biggest things. Jesus longs for us to join him there. In the high priestly prayer of John 17, in the 24th, 24th verse, he says this, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Do you think the Son of God asks any of the thing of the Father that the Father won't give him? And this is that, you know, the writer of the Hebrews says, he's our forerunner. He's gone into heaven. He's the one who's going to draw us in. He's praying to the Father. This is a promise. And the promise of heaven should be a great source of joy. And if it is, because of that hope, we'll share our faith. We have this assurance because God is the one who promised. It doesn't have anything to do with the strength of my faith. It has to do with the fact that when I'm found in Christ, God has promised to bring me home. We live in this physical world and we look around us and we glory in this world and it's, it's been tainted by man and yet it still has great majesty and we, we view our victories here. That happened with Jesus and his disciples. He, uh, he empowered 70 of them, gave them authority over demons and sent them out. Uh, and, and we have that account in Luke 10 and when they came back, they were rightfully rejoicing. <laughs> the demons were subject to them. Jesus put it in perspective, though. He said in verse 20, Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. There was great victory they had. He said, that pales in comparison. Your names are written in heaven. How are they written? Well, can I suggest at least three places? The book of life the Lamb's book of life, and on the palms of the Savior. 
There's a lot of confusion over the, the book of life. It's spoken of from Moses spoke of it in Exodus through the Psalms and all the way into Revelation. Um, numerous places, many of the writers have spoken of it. Daniel, Malachi, Paul wrote about it in Philippians 4 and alludes to it in Hebrews 12. Let's see if we can clear up a little bit of the confusion. The book of life. I mean, I, it's like a certificate of live birth in a county, a state, or a country. Somebody's born, and in the county register's office, there is a name entered. There is a live birth. There is someone who is alive. At the same time in heaven, there is a, I, I think it's much earlier, I think it's a conception, but it's written in the book of life. There is a human who is physically alive. That person lives their life and dies. At the county, there is a certificate of death. They're removed from the census as being a living human being, unless somebody's doing something illegal. The same thing happens in heaven. Essentially, you have a, cert a certificate of live birth. Their name's in the, the book of life. And when they're physically dead, the name is removed. Uh, there's an exception. That's where the Lamb's book of life comes in. We, we, I was going to talk about this example. We had a beautiful example of it this morning as we opened up this meeting. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You have the book of life. A human being is born and it's entered into God's book of life. And they live their life, but at some point they trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. At that moment their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. There's two births. There's a physical birth. There's a spiritual birth. And when that name is written into the Lamb's Book of Life, both those entries now are in indelible ink. They can never be erased. And so the one who is found written in the Lamb's Book of Life remains alive. You know, Jesus, standing before the tomb of Lazarus, said, you know, I, I am the resurrection. He says, you know, man living me, even if he dies, he'll live again. Anyone living in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what we're talking about here. Where else are we written? Mention the, uh, in the palms of the Savior. Isaiah 49. And Judah, Jerusalem, they're complaining. They said, Lord, you've forgotten us. There was this thought, well, God, how come you're not taking care of us? You've forgotten us. And he brings up, as an example, he, he refers to a woman who's just given birth, she's got a nursing child at her breast. In Isaiah 49, 15 and 16, he says, Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. I read that and I immediately think of John 14, too. First wall is being put up for me in heaven and I'm engraved in the palms of the hand of the Savior. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never, 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 never perish. It's really the way it's written in the Greek. Nobody's going to erase the scars from the palm of the Savior's hand. I'm firmly nailed there. Well, the final question for this is, are you sure you're going to heaven? pretty important question. Who enters? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, their name is blotted out of the book of life and they're cast into the lake of fire. So I often say it's, it's really a simple path that leads to heaven. But it's not easy. We have to swallow our pride. And for some of us, that's more than a whole meal. We have to agree with God that no matter how good we are in earthly terms, we're unrighteous. We're not perfect. Perfection can't dwell in the presence of God. If we're going to be in heaven, we have to be perfect. And only he can make it. Uh, he's the one who can take perfection that we don't possess and give it to us, even though we don't deserve it. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And most sane people agree, I'm not perfect. Romans 6.23 tells us the res result of that is you're going to be paid death. You've earned it. It's, gonna, it's coming. He's a perfect accountant, perfectly honest. And every debt is going to be paid. That verse continues, though. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I deserve death, how... How can this happen? And we talked about it in, in the meeting this morning because God is just. In Romans 3.25, it talks about he's passed over the sins of man because of his forbearance, but judgment is coming. Payment must be made for sin. God never forgives any sin. Every sin's got to be paid for. 2 Corinthians 5.21, as our brother shared in the worship service this morning, that's how it's done. Jesus looked at me and says, Russ, 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 you, you've got no righteousness. Oh, you got plenty of iniquity, but you got no righteousness. Ah, look at my son, Jesus. He's, he's full of righteousness. He's got no iniquity. Let's make a trade. I'll take your sin and give it to him, and I'll take his righteousness, give it to you. Well, you know, when my sin went to the Lord, so did my death. You know, dead to sin, alive to Christ. With my sin went my death. That's why in Romans 3.26, it says that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ because the payment for my sins have been made by Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid that price. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 24 says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body in the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. He talks about in 1 Peter, uh, in chapter 1, we've been purchased. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed or purchased with corruptible things, silver and gold is, is from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers. We, we don't trust the traditions of men. We trust the word of God. No, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ as of the lamb without blemish and without spot. Paul says the result of that is you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And if, as Romans 10, 9 says, if we confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth and believe that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. The one who bought me, he's my master. I don't owe myself. As C.T. Studwin said, I, I just see it this way. He owns me. If I don't give it all to him, I'm, I'm just a cheap thief. All this happens because God has demonstrated his love toward us. You know, that famous verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
So for the one hearing the message, it's simple. You just have to agree with God. I, I, I'm not perfect. I'm unrighteous. Even if I've only told one little lie, I'm, a, I'm rated right there with the murderers. Fearful, unbelief, all these are sins. Oh God, I, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just that very thought puts you in the place where God says, I can deal with it. In believing that Christ took my sins and bore them on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, as Paul writes, a certificate of debt that I owed in death has been canceled out, put away forever. Oh God, give me that. The moment we say that, they move from just being one of God's glorious creation that's going to pass away and burn up, maybe spend all eternity in the lake of fire. We become one of his children, the privileged one to dwell forever in his house, in his kingdom. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you. We can't save you, but we can point you to this truth. Again, considering eternity, there's only two options the lake or the city, the pit of hell or the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for this gift you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. We have no right to claim it, yet you have extended to us that right by offering up the precious one, your holy lamb, who has taken away and borne our sins as our brother shared the scapegoat who though having no iniquity of his own, bare ours and took it away far into the wilderness where you say you choose to remember our sins no more. What a glorious thought. Father, give us the mind to dwell on your son, Jesus Christ, and on the glory you have promised us. We so look forward to being in your presence. Strengthen us today. Give us conviction and courage to be obedient to your word that in all things we might bring glory to your name. We might lift up your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that other men would see him and be saved. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.